So Daniel chapter 9, what begins in Daniel 9 is Daniel comes across the writings of Jeremiah and Daniel will say of the writings of Jeremiah, I saw in the writings of Jeremiah that the people of God were in captivity for 70 years and I got excited really is what Daniel's saying because I realized we're almost at the end of this captivity. So he begins to pray, he begins to repent. Why? I think he's praying and repenting because he realizes there's two or three potential start dates for when that 70 years would have began. He's interceding that the Lord makes it shorter. He also is aware that there's a passage in Leviticus where the Lord says, if I discipline you and you don't listen to me, I will bring upon you seven times the discipline so you continue to learn. So Daniel's nervous about that. And so he's praying and he's crying out and he's interceding. And while he's praying and crying out and interceding for the people around him, we look at that and we learn a principle from that, that the call of God on us when we see things in the culture around us that gross us out, that anger us, is not to get mouthy and to get judgmental. It is actually to get on our face and cry out for the people around us, to own their sin as if it were our own, because we already have a covenant relationship with the one that can change it. Man, that was so much better than your response. <laughs> so Daniel's in this position and the angel Gabriel comes and visits him. And Gabriel will come to him and, and interrupt his prayer. He says, I went on praying and confessing the, the, sins and the sins of my people, my sins and the sins of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. As I was praying, Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I've come here to give you an insight and understanding. The moment you began praying, a command was given. I'm here to tell you what it was, for God loves you very much. Now listen so you can understand the meaning of your vision. And then it gets super apocalyptic and strange. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to put down rebellion, to bring an end to sin, to atone for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint a most holy place. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven, which is 49 years, plus 62 sets of seven, which is altogether 483 years, will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. So Gabriel will go on and he's laying out this grid for what's gonna happen. He's talking to him about the future. And it's, it's full of all kinds of loaded language. And so why would he use 70 sets of seven? Because it's a play on words. Daniel would have been praying about years of captivity. So basically Gabriel comes and says, it's not gonna be 70 Years. It's going to be 70 sets of seven years. And he uses, this, uses a term that we would connect to the idea of weeks, but it just meant a period of time. So Daniel instantly understands 490 years are being talked about. We dove in last week to begin to ask the question, can we look through history and find a place where these events that Gabriel prophesies happen so we can start marking this and understand what was said? If you've ever, I asked last week, how many of you have read a book that told you when the earth was supposed to end based on prophecy? And so we understand that, that there, there's, there's ideas being kicked around about the end of the world. If you grew up in a culture like I did, you had all these teachings about what was going to happen in the end times and how apocalyptic and, and ugly it's going to be. And, and my answer to that is, I just want to know what the scriptures teach. I want to know what can we prove and where can we say appropriately, I don't know what that is. That's an okay answer. Paul will say that. After Paul gets taken out by the Lord, literally he's riding on a donkey, the Lord knocks him flat on his behind, he goes blind, the Lord takes him for somewhere between three and 14 years 
in the backside of the wilderness to teach him the kingdom. And after all of that one-on-one time with God, Paul will still in his gospel say, there's some stuff that's a mystery to me. I don't really know what it means. So it's okay for us to come out of this study with that. Where we left off last week, I think we got further maybe in this gathering than anywhere else, I'm not positive. We went through the six things that were supposed to be accomplished by this 70 sets of seven. There were six things Gabriel said that were gonna be done. To put down rebellion, to make an end of sin, to atone for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to fulfill or confirm prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, we talked about the fact that they were pointing clearly to Jesus. We all see that because we look through the, we look through the scope backwards and we can see Jesus. He goes on, Gabriel will say, now listen and understand. The word is, I want you to, he basically says to Daniel, I want you to put all these pieces together. And he goes through the 70 sets of seven and we did a bunch of math. How many remember math class last week? So it was 490 years, and we said this, okay, so God is Hebrew, therefore it's more likely than not that God is not going to send one of his angels. I would say angels probably don't really know the Gregorian calendar, they only know the one God set up. Jewish calendar is 360 days, it's a five-day difference. So if you take the 490 years total, we know that they're broken into three places. It's one set, set, seven sets of seven. 62 sets of seven, those two together equal 483 years with one remaining set of seven left. The way Gabriel presents this is he says, there's some things that are going to happen by the end of this 69th set of seven. These are the six things that this entire time has been set to accomplish. If you do all the math, what it brings us to, and I'll take you through it quick, Jewish calendars, 360 days. We multiply that by 483 years. We come to 173,880 days. Divide that by 365 because that's how Gregorian history is tracked. Does that make sense? So we're solving for a period of time. It gives us a number, 476.38 years. So we have to now look for when was the word spoken? Is there a moment in history where the command was given to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple? We have four possibilities. The first three of these deal with the command to either rebuild or restore function in the temple. But a city wasn't a city in the ancient world without what? Walls. Because a fortified defense. Walls. So now we are looking at this situation with where was the command given to actually rebuild the city or the walls? Artaxerxes to Nehemiah will say in somewhere between 446 and 444. So let's call it 445 for fun. Somewhere in that time pocket, Artaxerxes says to Nehemiah, go rebuild the walls, which would have been the first moment when the city of Jerusalem would have actually been refortified to become an inhabitable place with protection. If you take our 476.38 years, you subtract them from that Marker in the sand, 444 BC to 446, you end up with, now catch what's on the horizon. Gabriel's word to Daniel is, this is when the Messiah, the anointed one, will be on the earth. And it puts you at AD 30 to AD 33. That's your time pocket. Gabriel will say, after this period of 69 sets of seven, he says, of the 62nd set of seven, The anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. Jesus is killed in this same time period, AD 30 to AD 33. Appearing to have accomplished nothing is another important marker for us to understand because 
Would you, what, those of you that know history, wouldn't you not agree that the Jewish people believed that Jesus was a fail because he didn't come and overthrow the Romans? They were looking for the Messiah to come set up a kingdom on earth so they were no longer under captivity so the messianic rule would kick into place. But that's not what he did. He came and he died. So they all scoffed at him saying, who is this that thinks he's the king? He's hanging on a cross. Now, we move into another phase of Gabriel's word. He says, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. Now, this is the pocket where a lot of Thoughts or scholar work is around the idea that, oh, this is future forward. This is dealing with the end of time. I fundamentally disagree, and I'm going to show you why. You are free to disagree with me. Just do your own homework. The argument is that the subdivisions, this is what's understood. Those subdivisions are given by Gabriel in 762 and 1. Almost uniformly, most scholars believe the seven and the 62 happen consecutively with a space for the one. The reason there's a space given before the last set of seven take off is because there's some things that have to happen between the end of one and the beginning of another that would not actually be possible to happen instantly. You guys doing good? Tracking with me? You're like, well, this is like school. (laughs) You should try being the one that has to study it to teach it. According to Gabriel's prophecy, There has to be a temple. The temple is required for it to be fulfilled. A ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. Then will come a flood and a war with miseries decreed from that time. He'll make a treaty with the people for a period of seven, but after half of that, which is how much? I'm just making sure you're staying with me. Three and a half. He'll put an end to the evening sacrifices and offerings. Then at a climax of his terrible deeds, he sets up sacrilegious objects that cause desecration until the end has been decreed and is poured out on this defiler. Now, I think it would have been easier for Gabriel to just go, let me spell it out, let me give you names, but he doesn't do that. He's giving it in language that feels just a little mystical and a little apocalyptic. I want us to understand the Lord does this for a reason. It is regular that the Lord will release words that have a bit of mystery to them because what it reveals is the one that hears a word from the Lord that has mystery in it and goes and does the searching out to find it has actually said, I care about what you're saying. The one that just receives blunt information knows the end results, but actually doesn't have the heart to pursue it. And I love the grace of God that he will speak in riddles and mysteries because he wants to know, if you want to know what I'm saying to you, you go search it. Then I can hold you accountable for what you found out, but I'm going to protect you and make it a mystery in case you're so arrogant that you don't care what I say. That's a really big idea. Matthew 24 is a passage we have to look at as we're looking at this because Jesus will connect what's going on in Daniel to his lifetime in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, there's a phrase included in it that Jesus will say to his disciples after he quotes Daniel 9, before this generation dies, these things will happen. So we now have a pocket of time to look at. The things that have to be accomplished before the last set of seven can begin According to Gabriel's words, the Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. And we need to look at what that means because it's important. The Hebrew word translated cut off is common in Mosaic law and it simply means to be killed. But the implication of the term is that the Messiah would not only be killed, but he was going to die a penal execution. The Hebrew expression and shall have nothing has two meanings. At times, it can be used to mean nothingness, emphasizing just the state of death, 
They're gone. It can also be translated, but not for themselves, as in substitutionary or serving. The latter meaning is much more consistent with what the prophets elsewhere have to say about the Messiah. If you want to go look at that, go run to Isaiah 53, 1 through 12, and it's clearly stated that the Messiah is going to die a substitutionary death. So the first three purposes of the, seven, of the 69 sets of seven is to finish transgression, make an end of sin, and make reconciliation for iniquity. According to scriptures, Without the shedding of what? Blood. There's no remission for sin. There's no dealing with, with guilt. Blood has to be shed. Something has to die. That's the principle we see in Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing that we see is death. That God sacrifices an animal to clothe them. It wasn't about their nakedness. It was about the need for blood to be shed. I believe that the, that the clothing they were given was a constant reminder that something had to die for them to be, remain clean. As it should be for us. So the point of this phrase from Gabriel is that between the end of the second subdivision or the 69th set of seven and before the start of that 70th, which is the last remaining one set of seven, that the Messiah would be killed and would die a penal substitutionary death. My other argument for why I think that it's not way out in the future is the temple has to be destroyed. During this second interim pocket, there's going to be the need to destroy the temple. Have you, how many know what, what Jerusalem looks like right now? What is sitting on that temple mount? Dome of the Rock. It's an, it's an Islamic mosque. There is no temple. The temple's gone. And we actually can mark in history when that temple was destroyed. So what we know out of Gabriel's word is that sometime after the Messiah was cut off, Jerusalem, which was rebuilt, the temple, which was to be rebuilt at the beginning of this prophetic word, would also be destroyed. So I want to move us to Matthew 24 with the two minutes and 26 seconds I have left. Now you know why I want to go to two gatherings also. Because it's an important context for us to understand this final set of seven. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. So where they're at right now, temple is fully intact. It's beautiful. Blynn and I were there in February. Right now, the temple mount is just flat, and it looks odd. The mosque that's sitting on it doesn't look like it fits where it should be. It definitely looks like something was planted because everything else was destroyed. So they're looking at, at, at the, the right version of it, the rebuilt temple, the rebuilt city. What you would see now is totally different. Now, someone postulated an idea to me. Well, what happens if maybe there's an uprising and the, the Jewish people kick out the Islamic people and they take over their mosque? I don't think there's a good Jew in the world that says a mosque is going to be okay with me instead of a temple. But given when we were there, the way I listened to the language, the, the, there's an incredible tension, let's call it that, in the Middle East over these issues. So they're pointing out the various temple buildings, but Jesus says to them, do you see all these buildings? He says, look around, guys. I assure you, they will be so completely demolished that not one stone will be left on top of another. That is true right now of this place. 
Later, Jesus sat on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. So where the Temple Mount is, if you go down the Kidron Valley, which is just, we would, it's like being on horse tooth and looking across at the next, next ridge. It's not a far distance. In fact, it's not much bigger than being on, on one side of horse tooth staring across, across the reservoir to the other. So the Kidron Valley just cuts really down deep, deep V, goes up, and that is the Mount of Olives. So they're up on the Mount of Olives, they're looking down, the Mount of Olives is a higher vantage point, so they're staring in at the temple, and the disciples come to him and they say, hey, when will all of this take place, and will there be any sign ahead of time to signal your return in the end of the world? How many questions do they ask right here? Two. One with two parts. One that's alone. We cannot look at Jesus' responses in light of a single question. We have to look at Jesus' response in light of two questions. Question one is, when will all this take place? Question two is, will there be any sign ahead of time to signal your return in the end of the world? So Jesus tells them, I gotta, I gotta tell you this part. How many, are, if I say the law of two mountains, know what I'm talking about? Not very many. Let me teach you a tiny bit of Bible college. If you read Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, there's this principle that, that Bible scholars will use called the law of two mountains, which means they were seeing something in the natural, speaking to it, but it also had a prophetic connection beyond them, far out in time. So in this way, one prophetic word has two application points. Jesus does the same thing here. He's talking to them with one phrase that's dealing with two issues. Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah, and they'll lead you astray. They'll lead many astray, and wars will break out near and far, but don't panic. Yes, these things must come, but the end won't follow immediately. The nations and kingdoms will proclaim war against each other. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all this will only be the beginning of the horrors to come. Then you'll be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because of your allegiance to me, and many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will lead many people astray. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. But all those who endure, who endure to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so all the nations will hear it. And then finally, the end will come. This first portion is dealing with the second coming of Christ. Notice the phrase. He says, Don't, yes, these things must come, but the end won't follow immediately. He's telling them, guys, my second coming is not coming soon. He shifts gears. The time will come when you will see what Daniel, the prophet, spoke about. That's here in chapter 9. Jesus says, the time will come when you will see. In the Greek, it literally means you will see. If I said to you, you're going to see sunshine today, you would not expect to feel an existential sense of warmth. You would expect to see it be sunny. This is what Jesus is saying. What Daniel spoke about was a sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. He says, read or pay attention. Jesus doesn't say that. The writer says that. If you look in your Bibles, one's in red, one's in black. I, just, I think it's important. I actually think the writers thought it was important enough to go, don't miss this, please. He says, then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person outside the house must not go inside and pack. A person in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it would be for a pregnant woman and for mothers nursing their babies in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter on the Sabbath, for that will be a time of greater horror than the world has ever seen again. Do you notice that in what he's saying, all the language is about Israel? The language is about Jerusalem. He's using Sabbath. Judea. Judea is a hilly region just outside of Jerusalem. All of this language is connected to Jewish culture. 
There's a phrase that says the world will have the ability to see and know. And there are some, if you Google it, they'll say that's an evidence that it's part of the information age because you can pick up your phone and see what's going on around the world. That's fine if we understand the world will see and know to mean technology. But that phrase, the world, in Scripture, most commonly means the known world around you. So it could very easily be him saying, hey, everybody around you is going to see and know this thing. And then there's a phrase that says, Unless this time of calamity is shortened, the entire human race will be destroyed. That's not the greatest translation. The word is actually, life will cease. Could just as easily be Jesus talking about everybody in Jerusalem will die. If some type of cataclysmic event happens in Fort Collins and the statement is, it wiped out everybody. Did it wipe out everybody in the earth or did it wipe out everybody in the city it happened in? I think that's the more accurate way to understand what Jesus is saying. Then he transitions, goes back into talking about his return. He says, then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't pay attention. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great miracles, signs, and wonders as so, so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. I've warned you. For someone tells you, look, Messiah's out in the desert, don't bother and go look. Or look, he's hiding here, don't believe it. For as the lightning lights up the entire sky, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Jesus says this, guys, it's gonna be absolutely obvious when I return. If you have ever been taught the idea that, I mean, I went to bed and they're gone. They must be saved, I'm not. That is not what he's talking about here. Yes, he goes on in Matthew and he talks about Different group, people groups in different places, one being gone, the other not. He's clearly talking about the idea of a global thing that happens, it affects everybody. He uses three different time pockets, one's in the morning, one's in the afternoon, one's at night, meaning that it's a global thing at the same time, it's different times of day everywhere else. Can we see that? And it's going to, there's gonna be some selected and some not. I'm fine with all that. But to say that everything in Daniel is about the end times, we start getting squirrely with our interpretation. Because what Jesus teaches is, we're not going to miss his return. It's going to be obvious. And he transitions back to the temple. He says, now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its buds become tender and its leaves begin to sprout, you know without being told, summer's near. Just so, when you see the events I've described begin to happen, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. I assure you, then he uses a phrase, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. The word for generation here is the exact same word that's used in the beginning of Matthew when they're talking about genealogy. They're talking about sons of fathers moving through time. In the Jewish culture, this is most often understood as 30 to 40 years. There are a lot of translators or a lot of scholars that would say, oh, that means an age. There's an age that won't pass. I think that's a stretch. I think it's harder to prove. You're welcome to believe it. I don't. I'll show you why. He shifts again, takes back aim at the question of his return. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels or me. He says, I myself, Jesus, don't know when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows. For me, this word generation is key because of the way it's used everywhere else. And if we see Jesus answering two separate ideas here, idea one being, when's the temple and the city gonna be destroyed? Idea two, when are you gonna return? How do we know? If we see him answering two questions, we can see this as a prophetic declaration to them that the end of the city, the end of the temple is coming within their lifetime. And our knowledge of history, if we just look at our history books, AD 70, what happened? 
fall of Jerusalem. The Romans come against Jerusalem. Titus steps up against Jerusalem. And 63 begins. I'm sorry, in 66 to 73. How many years is that? Curious. It's seven. Huh, look at how that works. And he brings an end to the city and the temple within the 30 to 40 year mark of the people Jesus spoke it to. It absolutely lapses time-wise perfectly. In the rest of Matthew 24, Jesus goes on to basically give them a how-to guide to live post this. And he gives them three simple things that I think are great takeaways for us. No one can know the day, not even him. So quit looking for it when he returns. But what he expects while he's away is faithfulness that we will be doing what he's asked us to do. All of the language in Matthew 24 is about staying faithful to the tasks given to you. But to not lose sight of eternity that it is real. To never get so focused on day-to-day life that you forget that there is an eternal reward. There is eternity coming. So we live with our eye on the future, hoping that he appears because we can't wait to be with him. And some of us, if you're like me, I grew up going, Lord, please don't come back right now. I don't want to see you yet. I want to have a family. Quit worrying about all that and just be faithful to your daily task. And the way we live those out is I think stop worrying about when. If Jesus doesn't know when he's returning, how do we? Only the Father knows. But stay faithful to him and to his teaching and live with eternity and your reward in mind. There's two things that jump out at me as we close this up. I see in Daniel 9 an incredibly loving, gracious God who loved his people so much that he gave them a prophetic timeline so they could trace through history and know when the Messiah was gonna be on the earth so they wouldn't miss him because he loved them that much to say, I'm gonna make it impossible for you to miss him. And it causes me to ask a question. If he can be that detailed with his people then, why would we doubt his ability to lead us and guide us now? But the truth is, I can fully trust him, and if I am diligent to live on what he says, I'll end up where I'm supposed to be. I think for me, this teaching reveals that we can trust his leadership in our lives. And some of us need to quit trying to lead ourselves and let the Spirit of God lead us. The second thing I think we need to learn, which is important, is about the people of God. Because from the time that Daniel received this, I believe what we see is a gross lack of concern for what's written by the prophets. You see, what was written by the prophets, what was written by Moses, is what they had as the scriptures. But what happens is we see Jesus come on the scene and none of them know to expect him except for a very few. Remember Simeon in the early part of Luke? When he says, finally my eyes have seen the one. The reason he says that is he's traced it all the way through history, and he knows in my lifetime I'm supposed to see the Messiah. If if I don't see the Messiah, God's a liar, and it's not true because this is what he said. I love that kind of faith, which, which just says, Lord, you either are who you said you are or you're not. It's not my job to defend you. It's just my job to respond to your moves. But what I see is a people who failed to be diligent to the scriptures, to read them, to know them. Hosea will speak of it and say, of the people of God, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And church, I would say this to us. 
I'm not saying it judgmental towards the people of Israel and Daniel. I'm saying, woe be to us if we in our day and our time do not put the scriptures into our hearts, do not discipline ourselves to study, do not give ourselves to the task of saying, you have given us this beautiful thing called the word of God. We're gonna read it, know it, chew it up so we don't sin against you. I don't wanna miss the move of God in my lifetime like they missed that move of God in theirs because I was lazy in the text. Let's stand.